Revelation 1, verses 12 through 20. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as white wool, white as snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like, and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and see, I am alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Now write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, we thank you for this morning and this time to be together. And we, Father, just pray uh, for our hearts and our minds to be open. And may your spirit enter into us, work in us, and transform us more into your likeness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. It feels like it, and, and, and I might be wrong, and you can correct me after my sermon, but it just feels like with this three-week series that, that fear is the name of the game. Everywhere we turn, Someone or something is telling us that we should be afraid of something. Whatever that something is for today, what I'm hearing the theme is, you should be afraid of it. The news is telling us about wars and the rumors of wars. The politics of the day is telling us not to trust one another. And especially don't trust that person, whoever that person is, because he or she might hold a different opinion than you. And so therefore, it feels like that we question allegiances of others, we question uh, their worth and value of others, and, and when I say we, I will concede that it may not be you that is doing the questioning. However, I will contend that the show you're watching or the program you're listening to might be telling you the opposite of that. Because that's what allegiances are. Allegiances are these things that we want to feel a part of something. We want to feel special. And I think we all want to be a part of something. I mean, I can remember on the playground at Bowie Elementary having secret clubs with handshakes and even special ID cards that we created. Only those who had the cards and those who could shake hands properly would be able to play with each other. And so if you couldn't shake the hand properly, which by the way, we knew at the point you couldn't, it wasn't like we were a big school, or you didn't have the right ID card, then you weren't going to be able to play two below football with us. And while we laugh at those innocent games, I think about college students today who want to be in certain fraternities and sororities. It's no judgment because I was the same way at ACU. I, can, I was just reminiscing a few weeks ago with my college roommate about our decisions in picking a social club at ACU. 
I can remember all of us on a Saturday night sitting around in an apartment trying to decide between this social club or this social club which one all of us would do. It wasn't you could do whatever you want to. It was either all or nothing. It was either an eight to nothing vote or we'd keep voting until we got to there. But we were all going in the same thing. There was something about feeling like we were in, that we were wanted, that we were a part of something special. And in thinking that way, there's also an inverse to the feeling, which is the feeling of being left out, of being not like everyone else, because nobody likes that feeling. Nobody wants to feel left out. Nobody wants to feel uh, like no one cares about them. And you might be the most introverted person in the world. You might look at me and go, Russell, I hate people. But still, no one likes feeling on the outside. It's hard to be considered different or outside of a group. There is a fear of being alone. A fear of not being like everyone else. And fear has a way of causing us to become like everyone else. Or play by their rules. Because the last thing we want is to be ostracized or ridiculed for not being in the in crowd. It's what we see in our world today, allegiances to one side or another, and it can get ugly, it can get mean-spirited, it can even be uh, unkind. We take allegiance to a group very seriously. To stay in one, you must say the right things and be the right things. It's the elementary playground all over again. Got the handshakes and the ID card. If, if someone were to say something different or be different in the moment, then that person could find themselves incurring the brunt of the group's anger. Do we not see it today? Our text in Revelation speaks to this kind of fear in the world, the fear of being outside, the fear of being outside the allegiance of a group, the fear of being outside the allegiance of the empire. It's the last place anyone wanted to be in the first century, an outsider to the Roman Empire. One had everything to fear when the power of Rome was against you. Rome asked for and only accepted complete loyalty from the citizens. There was no alternative. It could be why we find John in Revelation 1-9 on the island of Patmos. John and his faithful witness to Jesus is an outsider from the empire. Whether in exile or not, and there's a debate on that, but whether in exile or not, John's embodying of the life of Christ has caused enough tension for the empire to desire to want him as far away from the mainland as possible. We'll stick you on an island, John, and just shut up. But it's on the island of Patmos where John has this vision. It's on the island of Patmos that John writes this book in which talks to us about our calling in the world. And the best way that I could put this final kind of lesson is this. Don't be afraid. Because I am king. I feel like that's good news that we need to hear today. That while allegiances are being questioned daily, and loyalty can be a moving target, 
and there are expectations about what you and I and how you and I must act and sound like, John says today, you don't have to be afraid if Jesus is your king. John says today, the one you follow is the one who is coming. But again, like with the last three weeks that I've looked at this, the question still comes, why shouldn't we be afraid? Why shouldn't I be afraid? The voices are loud and quite powerful. The churches and and Christians of the first century had a lot to be afraid of when it came to what Rome was asking them. If, If they were to oppose the empire, they would lose future. They would lose status. They would lose security. Everything was at risk. Loss of any of these three, future, status, and security, were heavy. But a loss of all three would be catastrophic. Again, sometimes it's easier just to be in, just to play by their rules than to be out. It's easier to accommodate to the ways of Rome and stay in the good graces of the empire than the alternative. And if that's the case, and the threat of exile, death, all of these things were on the table, then maybe the church could find a happy medium between this, right? Maybe we can, maybe we can find a way to get along with one another. You know, one foot in, one foot out, maybe a way for the church to uh, conflate itself with the empire, to not draw the ire of the empire. You see, there's something about this fear of being in. It causes us to hedge our bets just a little bit. It causes us to do things that we would otherwise never do because we want to be a part of something. And the ever-present power of Rome is always in the forefront of the minds of the citizens and non-citizens. And so what we read here in this part of Revelation 1 is Rome portrays itself like a uh, portrays itself as a godlike god-ordained power that would cause many to second guess any opposition to her power. And yet John in the reading today if we notice how he describes Jesus he describes Jesus in all of his power and majesty. And why is it? Why does John describe Jesus this way? Why does Jesus show up in such the spectacular fashion that Jesus shows up in verses 13 through 16? When we read it, we see he's wearing a long and golden sash across his chest. We, he describes him, he's described as hair as white as snow, eyes flame of fire, feet burnished bronze. His voice was like that of the waters. His right hand held seven stars, and what came out of his mouth was a two-edged sword. Why would John describe Jesus this way? Why would Jesus show up this way? And Dr. Greg Stevenson writes this in his book, A Slaughtered Lamb. By representing Christ with this imagery, Revelation offers a competing power claim to the voices of the authority, whether Greek gods, Roman emperors but also reinforces the message to these seven churches that the one speaking to them speaks with divine authority. Jesus shows up on the scene and says, you think the emperor has power. You think Rome has all the power. And Jesus shows up and says, look what power I have. Why shouldn't we be afraid? 
John's answer is we have no business being afraid. John can emphatically call all of us, the churches, to a faithful witness of Christ because it is the risen Christ who calls us to not be afraid. Do not be afraid. doesn't come from John's mouth, but from the ultimate authority, the one who defeated death, the one who defeated the powers of Rome, the one who, as we see in verse 18, holds the very keys of death in Hades in his hand. All of the empire's power, all of the empire's desire for allegiance, all of the empire's fear that it places on its people to concede and accommodate is laid to bear in the vision of Jesus. And here's the thing about this vision and the good news for us today. We noticed at the outset in the vision that Jesus is standing among the lampstands of the churches like the Roman empires of their day, placing the image on everything they could place it on, whether it was money or nice, or nice, uh, 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 you know, what am I, I lost the word, monuments, there it is. Uh, like any of that, Jesus counters this practice by walking amongst the lampstands. The risen Christ is not just placing himself in pictures, the risen Christ is with the very churches. He holds the churches, notice, in his hand, in him and near him. The competing claim of the Roman Empire, and for us today, the competing claims of whatever it is that's trying to work on your allegiance, are laid bare before Christ. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the risen one who has conquered the last stronghold of fear, which is death. And therefore, why would we ever give our lives over to anything else but Jesus? Why would we ever conflate the life of Jesus with anything else? It's not Jesus plus other stuff. For us as Christians, it's only Jesus. Why would we place our allegiance in anything other than the one who conquered death. The assurance of good news of Revelation 1 is that Jesus is our security and hope. Jesus is with us. Jesus is next to us. Jesus loves us and will never abandon us. Our lives and the life of the church is in Jesus Christ. He is Lord. He is King. He is Comforter. He is Witness. He is Advocate. And He is Redeemer. The church can be a witness to this good news of Jesus without ever conflating our allegiance with anybody else. Because if our allegiance is to the one who was risen from the dead, if our allegiance is the one who, as we see described in Revelation, then we have no business giving our allegiance to anyone else. We can love unconditionally. We can forgive radically. And we can live obediently because our God is with us and among us. There is no other party, there is no other group, there is no other empire that deserves our allegiance above or alongside the one we give Jesus in the waters of baptism. Richard Bauckham said this about the vision of Jesus to the churches today. Revelation itself allows no neutral perception. Either one shares Rome's own ideology, ideology the view of the empire promoted by Roman propaganda, or one sees it from the perspective of heaven, which unmasks the pretensions of Rome. When we read with our imagination the vision of Jesus walking among the lampstands, we have nothing to fear. We are in the one place we need to be. And in this group 
Fear doesn't stand a chance. Why give yourself to the ways of the world? Why accommodate to its lies and its deceptions and its ways? Jesus calls us to witness to his being and presence every day and witness to the world in love and compassion and grace and mercy and steadfastness. Our witness is constant. And let's be honest, it's revelation. It's not all daffodils and rainbows. There's suffering that goes along with this. There's a cost to being a witness to Christ because the world will continue to come at us and will continue to pull our allegiances. It will call us to accommodate, to be like them, to be like everyone else. It will tell us to hate and ostracize and divide, all contrary to the way of Jesus. And every day when we wake up, we decide where we will put this trust, where we will put this allegiance. Every day with action and word, we announce to our neighbors, we announce to our friends, and we announce to the empire around us today who we are for and just how bad we want to be in. Revelation reminds us of where we are secured, that we don't have to live in fear of the power of the empire or live in fear that we don't know all the right handshakes or live in fear that we don't know all the right words to say or live in fear that we believe what we believe. Revelation tells us you don't have to fear any of that because the one who created the world, the one who redeemed you, the one who knows you, walks amongst you and is king. The one who lived like you, suffered and died for you, was also raised again. Our hearts and our lives are secured in the one. So why would we give allegiance to anything else? Christ suffered for this. But the beauty of it is it's only half the story. The story is all about resurrection. That's why Jesus says, look at me, I'm alive. God is up to something in the world through us. Let us live fearlessly each day, looking forward to the day when all will be in all. And we can live fearlessly, free from the allegiances of the world, because Revelation reminds us that this moment today is only the beginning. In Revelation 21, 3 and 4, which we know very well probably, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Seeing the See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. We can live fearlessly because this is what's promised. We can live securely in the allegiance of Christ, letting all other allegiances pass away. Because all the other allegiances of Rome and the empire all had a finality to it. If you don't do it, you die. And Jesus says, if you die, there's life. And that's what we're called to. The fearless life, as we talked about this morning, is the resurrected life. No other allegiances but Jesus. No other allegiances but the way of Jesus. It's not Jesus plus. It's only Jesus and that's what our life is called to be. If you have any needs this morning, uh, any struggles, any prayer requests, we'll have elders down front, but come now as we stand and as we sing.